when you look at the world and the future, what what scares you? <laughs> it's people. It's people and a particular mindset, this human response to that technocracy, which is to invite it in and not question it at all. And where it is leading is to an increase in authoritarianism backed up by technology and a complete sort of willingness to hand over our autonomy. That really, really scares me. I'm Isha Da Vinci. This is The Griff Podcast. Today I'm talking with Tracy Follows. Tracy is one of the top 50 women futurists in the world. She is described as a truly original thinker, a visionary and scarily accurate in her predictions. She is CEO of Future Made, where she helps the biggest global brands and businesses to spot trends, develop foresight, and fully prepare for what comes next. Tracy is author of the book, The Future of You, subtitled, Can Your Identity Survive 21st Century Technology? And her podcast of the same name was recently named Best Technology Podcast at the Independent Podcast Awards. She's visiting professor of digital futures and identity at Staffordshire University in the UK, a member of the Association of Professional Futurists, and Associate Fellow of the World Academy of Art and Science. And she's on the advisory board of the Lifeboat Foundation. Our conversation is wide-ranging and big picture. It will get you rethinking everything you think about the future. Well, that's what it did for me. Let's dive in. Tracy, thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. It's um, super to be in your orbit, Misha. Oh, well, <laughs> so here's what I want to do. We want to delve into your thinking and sort of unearth and pull out your wisdom for the audience. But before we get into all of that, what exactly is a futurist, Tracy? <laughs> oh, that's something I ask myself most days. What is being a futurist today? Do you know, when it boils down to it, I think a futurist is somebody who challenges the assumptions we have about the future. Um, so one of my bugbears is around the fact that we are narrowing the futures <laughs> or future that we have. Um, there's a, a move towards forecasting, you know, with all the technology we have and the algorithms and the probabilistic artificial intelligence. We're sort of narrowing down the future. And a lot of the time you, you hear these phrases about, well, the future is this or we only have 12 years for that or it's very, very narrow and that's what's quite scary. And so I think actually the job of the futurist right now is to reopen, challenge those assumptions, create the alternative possible futures and hmm. um, to steer people away from the dull and boring probable future that they've been taught that is most likely and is, and is in some case set in stone. It isn't. Okay. So, okay. So that's a great start. So describe for us a day in the life of a futurist. You, when you get up in the morning, what are you seeking out? What, what drives you? What are you thinking about? What are you focused on? When I get up in the morning, I <laughs> normally I put my alarm on for six and then get out of bed at eight. Look, I'm not a morning person. It's really interesting because I'm trying to force myself. I say I'm trying. I've been doing that for 20 something years, 30 years probably, trying to force <laughs> myself <laughs> to get out of bed because I am an evening person. So, like most of my work, I think, is happening in these liminal spaces, these in-between spaces. I'm very much somebody who inhabits an in-betweenness. I've always felt it's quite difficult to categorize me or what I do, whatever. And I think I've come to the conclusion that's like part of why I do what I do is because I am in these in-between spaces. Um, and at night, especially, I'm kind of like, <laughs> I don't know if it's all the stimulus of the day, the things you've taken on, you've read, you've watched, you've chatted to people. And then when you're doing something else, somehow these connections get made in your brain and you think, well, I'm, well I do. I think, ah, oh, that's what it is. That's the big shift. Or this is the signal I've spotted. Or I've seen this in three different places now. And somehow it coalesces in my brain. And that I, it very seldom happens in the morning. I know people say, you know, hunt in the morning, gather in the afternoon, like mm. do all your writing and your thinking in the morning, and then you're researching in the afternoon. I've tried that. <laughs> I 
it's like, well, I really like the connections will just be made when the connections are ready to be made. And so in the morning, to be really honest with you, Misha, I'm usually like, I scribbled myself a note last night about some like awesome idea. And then I think, uh, and then I'm searching for that note in the morning thinking, now, what did I mean when I wrote that for myself? And then I start to work it out. Um, but really, most of the first thing I do in the morning is look through some news alerts, some, you know, what are the topical things that are happening, chat to some people and try to recalibrate where was I the day before when I had some sort of interesting idea about how all these things were connected and how to articulate it. So essentially, you're making connections, you're looking mm. at lots of information and data, perhaps, and what's happening in the world and what new technologies are being created or the news about that. And then you're making connections and thinking about how this can impact people's lives in the future. I mean, I'm trying to get at is why do we need someone like you in the world? Like, what are you bringing to the table as a futurist that's really valuable and that people should care about? I think it's not so much what I am bringing to the table. It's what I can help other people bring to themselves. How can the way I look at the world um, influence the way other people are looking at the world? How can me unpacking some assumptions and turning things upside down and being contradictory about something, how could that encourage other people to see the world like that? Like one of the big... Um, one of the big benefits of being a futurist is to re-perceive, to, to see the things we see on a daily basis through fresh eyes or ears <laughs> or, or anything else as we move into the future, um, to, to re-perceive what we are, what the data we are presented with. And I think that's that's one of the things a futurist has to do. Um, so if you can make novel connections, you will see the world in new and different ways. And the big job I think I've got is to help people not necessarily see the things I'm seeing, but at least see some fresh things from their point of view, from their perspective. Um, and I think that can be sometimes going back into the into the past and reinterpreting what we think we know about the past. Sometimes it can be about challenging some of the assumptions and biases and uh, methods and all, all the things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis, just stopping and thinking and rethinking these things. And sometimes it's about a third time horizon, which is being more visionary, you know, pro propelling out into the future and really having a clear vision about what it's going to be like <clears throat> and then using that using that vision to determine what two to three things you are going to do over the next six to 12 months I think that's what a lot of uh, technology companies in the last sort of 20 years have done and that blew legacy companies out the water they didn't they had a five-year plan like the thing to do was have a five-year plan and I always say to people forget your five-year plan that can go in the bin because it's not far enough off that it's visionary and it's it's um too far off that it's not actioned it just sits in that horrible limbo land where everybody pushes paper around you know in a corporation or whatever um and it doesn't really help and so my belief is and I did a TED talk on this um a few years ago um that the the future is the best decision making tool we have hmm. Hmm. if we listened to ourselves and we took on the awareness and the intuition we have uh, and we we remembered our dreams in the night and we tapped into some of these more sort of primal um, ways of understanding the world and, and anticipating the world. I think um, if you can tap into that, then you can, you can use that as a tool to help you make decisions today. And that is what we do. We toggle between the tomorrow and the today and we try and make sense of these things. But you have to be tapped into both those time horizons equally. I love it. That's beautiful. Do you know, do you know what I, I think about um, the future? Mm. I think the present, what we consider the present is really the past. It was someone's idea in the past, someone, someone's creation, someone, someone's dream, someone's vision. And they made this world that we live in as it is many different people. So what we call the present is really the past. What we call the future is this space where 
in the present, in the now, we can create a new possibility and do something different. It's and and it's the only place to live. You know, in, from from a from a mindfulness perspective, we taught we live in the present moment, and and I think that and exactly what you were saying, we have to we have to be in the present moment, but understand that that is about creating new things. It's ours to create in the now, not to reside, sort of locked into what was created in the past, which is what we've been given, but to create something new. So it is it is the most exciting place to be. And in fact, and I think it's the only place to be. I think that's really interesting what you said. Uh, I completely agree. I mean, you only have to look at the things that people build in the present. They're all sort of reminiscent of 1950s, 60s sci-fi. It's like memories of the future. It's a a nostalgic view of the future, the future we used to have, uh, you know, the Jetsons future. And now you end up building it. But, But that isn't what we should be building. We should be building something new for the new network society, not the old linear society. That's absolutely brilliant. So I think, so honestly, I think that the really the smartest people in the world today, and people like you for sure, are people who maybe came from the future, maybe came back here from 2250 or something to help out humanity who's stuck in the past. Okay, but that that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> if we go there, we'll we'll never finish this. We'll never get to well, where I'll I want to go. I'll tell you what, Misha. Gosh. There is an interesting thing I have started to look at, mm-hmm. and people were a bit. A couple of years ago, I said it at a conference, and people were a bit like, "What?" Um, I am getting more and more interested in retro causation. This idea that you know the future isn't necessarily time isn't necessarily linear. So we think we do something today that causes something in the future. But what if, and that is the question that all futurists should be asking themselves about everything every day, all day, what if the future causes the the present? And actually mm. it's kind of moving backwards. And so I'm I'm looking at that much more today. And I mm. think that's sort of that's a, a good pocket of the future. It's seeping yeah. in through a little bit of art, a little bit of science is coming together. And I think over the next like five to seven years that will become quite of a well, a bit of a trend. Well, I mean, from personal point of view, I have to say that's how I feel about myself ever since I was a child. I, was, I couldn't imagine that people, humanity was still dealing with issues that I thought were completely ridiculous. We know better. Why are we still doing this? Why are we still doing this? Why are we still doing this? We know it mm. doesn't work. And I always felt like I was from the future and I came here to sort of give some clarity. Like, guys, let's get a grip. This is rubbish. Come on. But anyway, mm. Um, mm. yeah. I mean, I mean, but we can do that in the next, next conversation. Okay, so, <laughs> so, all right. So you've been working in this space now for for a while how how long have you been a futurist would you say well professionally 10 years right but what I realized is I was doing futures your whole life in media and advertising yeah probably my whole life but certainly latterly in the bit of my advertising career that's that's what I was doing board packs for CEOs about what is the future of this technology and that technology? And only later I thought, oh, I realized, oh, you can do this professionally. And that's when I made the jump. Yeah. And I think I say it's your whole life because I think it's a whole, it's a mindset. It's a type of person that sort of thinks in this way and sees possibility and sees opportunity and sees how to think about things in a holistic way. And that allows for a whole new reality. Because you're not <laughs> locked into what is. You're like, no, I can create something new. Look at this, look at this, look at this. And let me create something new out of it. Mm. So, All right. So but you've been doing this for a long time. When you look at the world and the future, what, what scares you? <laughs> the same thing that scares me excites me. But at the minute, it does scare me. And it's people. It's people and a particular mindset or a place where we are at the minute, which is <clears throat> it's be- partly because of this rise in technocracy, but what it is is um, this human response to that technocracy, which is to invite it in and not question it at all. And where it is leading is to an increase in authoritarianism backed up by technology um, and a complete sort of willingness to hand over our autonomy 
Um, and I think that really, really scares me. Um, this, I mean, I did some research a few years ago um, and it was about the future of media. It was a future of media report I was doing. And I was talking to some fashion students and the, the one she was 20, 21 years old to me. She was saying, oh, you know, I really need some AI to tell me what uh, fashion suits me. I mean, this was a fashion student. And it transpired that actually what she thought was um, that even though she had fairly good grasp of what her style was, she actually needed to ask an objective machine, um, actually, objectively, what the analysis was of her style. And I said to her, well, that's very interesting. Do you really need AI or or some kind of assistance service, or do you just need a friend? Um, <laughs> because there's all of this human data, this intuition, this gut feel, I would say is also a data point, which is not being utilized. And actually even more so is being lost. And I think this is a, this is a big problem. But what I found from researching with those, um, when they were Gen Z at the time, um, is that they were happy to be regulated there's one guy who said to me, um, oh, you know, I really would like a, uh, a fridge to sort of lock its doors and uh, stop me from eating when I've had too many calories that day. And so there is this um, this outsourcing of um, trust and self-discipline and self-regulation to a sort of technocratic I don't know what it is really, a technocratic realm that uh, is external. And I think that that does actually scare me because I don't know where that goes then. Once you've lost trust in yourself, then anything can happen, right? Um, it's interesting. I think this is this is a huge area that requires a, a lot of thinking, a lot of um, consideration and research. I think everybody, all of our sort of leaders should be thinking about this. Mm -hmm. I, I wrote a paper, I wrote an article about, do you know, the Turing test, mm -hmm. which, which tests whether or not uh, an artificial intelligence is becoming more human, uh, uh, matching the level of human intelligence. Yeah. And then there was this test that was uh, that created, which was a reverse Turing test. And I wrote about it, which tests whether or not humans are becoming more like machines. And when the, with the emergence of the large language models and, and chat GPT, which last year, which a year ago now, it really got me thinking about this whole question of, okay, so we understand that artificial intelligence has progressed and, and everybody's talking about it. They're talking about the singularity and when is this going to happen? Artificial general intelligence. When will these machines that match and surpass human intelligence? Blah, blah, blah. And everybody's seemingly very excited about it on the one hand. And then there are all these people on the other hand who are terrified. Oh my God, it's going to take our jobs. It's going to take over the world. You know, terrible things are going to happen. I was thinking what we should really be concerned about is not that because we we can control the machine humans can and will control the machine uh, our concern should be who is controlling the machine um on the one hand but on the other hand are we who how how is our humanity being hmm. impacted by oh, exactly. our interaction and interfacing with machines and are we becoming more like machines and and we are we're having to our brains are being changed to engage and interact with digital digital technology it's been ha and so it's been happening since the rise of the internet in the 90s so back to your point about these young people who were willing to give up their autonomy to some force outside of themselves that would close the refrigerator, tell me what I should wear. All of that, I think, is a factor of them having spent their whole life interfacing with digital technology. What I think is what I think is happening is that there's a, there's missing data now because if you think about how much you're right they're outsourcing everything but in the outsourcing of it the feedback loop goes back to the machine so you and I are having a face to face now I can see your face um, I can see what you're 
what, what I think I might be wrong, but what I think your expressions and emotions mean, that is a feedback and that feedback's coming to me. And so I might say something and think, oh no, that, that was a good thing to say. Or that was a bad thing to say, whatever. I'm, there's a response and I moderate uh, my behavior, my words, my language, my interactions on the basis of that. When you are outsourcing everything to a machine, it's doing the communication on your behalf and it receives the feedback. And I think these young people just aren't getting the feedback. So if you aren't getting any feedback, you can't fill up the reservoir of trust in yourself, you know, your instinct, your intuition, therefore it's empty. And I think they're running on empty when it comes to instinct and intuition because they haven't had the feedback data. It's being siphoned off and pushed back into the machine because that's the extractive bit, right? That's genius. That's exactly what we want from you. That's the wisdom that I want our listeners to get. It's so true. And I think it's so helpful. You, in your book, The Future of You, I'm just going to pull it up here. The Future of You. It's a great title, by the way. (laughs) Can your identity survive 21st century technology? It's It's a great framework of thinking for thinking about identity in the 21st century. And and identity is deeply important. I mean, it's what we're talking about. Identity, autonomy, Mm, mm. they go hand in hand. Mm, It's mm. about our sense of self, our agency, our value, our humanity. And so it's hugely important to every single human person. But why were you interested in human identity enough to go and write a book about it? That's a good question. I think in general, I'd started to feel things changing around and I couldn't put my finger on it. Like if you ask me now, I don't know what those exact signals were. But as I say, if I'd seen enough or felt enough signals in enough different areas, I know something's happening. (laughs) Um, And I could already feel it. And I was, you know, I felt I think that our identity was fragmenting, that we were one person in the analog world and maybe a different person in the digital world, but I hadn't really thought about it too much until one day in 2016, I couldn't log into my Facebook account. Now you'll know this story. I'm not going to go through it, but you know the story from the book. Um, and uh, I was receiving a lot of emails saying, don't you want to um, update your status, show your friends what you're doing? And I looked and they weren't my friends. They're all blokes of, I don't know, 20 or 30 something. And um, in their swimwear. <laughs> and uh, I was like, who is it? And apparently I was somebody called Byron Loweth. So I thought, what's gone on here? Now, either my Facebook was hacked or my email was hacked. I don't know to this day what happened, but long story short, tried to re-log in, couldn't, was asked by Facebook to upload a driving license or a passport, uploaded my passport, and Facebook came back and said, you are not Tracy Follows. And I was like, that's really interesting because I've always thought I was um and, and and all on my news feed and everywhere on my site that you operate facebook it's got pictures of me uh, my life my connections my colleagues my workplaces everything so how could it not be me anyway it 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 dawned on me that we were entering a new era which i would say was identity meant that you had to become machine readable I wasn't machine readable, therefore I didn't exist. And that was quite frightening to me. And so that started me on this path of exploring, crikey, what does this mean? If I'm, do I need to be machine readable by the government? Uh, Yes, I do, because I need to authenticate myself in certain um, scenarios. Um, What if I am... Uh, how am I machine readable in the social sphere? And that took me into thinking about, you know, what social media and a mediated self is doing to us and all of this sort of stuff. And um, I think that's that's why I started to get really interesting, interested in identity and realised that actually identity was no longer just about the biology of the self and the psychology of the self. It, there was now a third dimension, which was the technology of the self. And because of my Facebook experience, I thought, I'm not in control of that technology. I'm in control, to an extent, I'm in control of my bodily functions. <laughs> I'm in control of my cognition. I'm not in control of my technolo- the technology of myself because it belongs to a company who I sort of subscribe to and they could, and I'm, I'm signing up to their terms and conditions, basically. So what am I, a terms of service, Tracy? Um, what, what am I now? And so this started me on the journey. And I just, I felt like, not that it was something uniquely insightful, but I just felt I'd had an experience that I could translate to other people and say, 
look, there are all these implications that come from this. What are we going to do about it? Um, in the book, so you examine the technological forces that are reshaping mm. our identity in, in this crazy time of massive change. Crazy. <laughs> what I want to I want us to get a little more granular and go through because the framework of the book is so amazingly brilliant. I want to go through just the chapter topics and use them as jumping off points for you to sort of mm. give our audience a little idea of some of the things that they maybe want to be thinking about. Mm. And yeah, and also sort of let them know what they what they're going to get when they get the book. Okay, so chapter one of the book is knowing you. What what's that? What's that? This about? is really about how do you how do you authenticate yourself? Because really, from birth you get a birth certificate. So this is the beginning, really. Um, and you get a legal official documentation, and that's different in different countries across the world. Um, but essentially, you get some sort of government issued id essentially and you kind of use that now we get that to different degrees and what i was saying that there's now experiments going on now where in a decentralized or networked world it isn't as it isn't as simple as that and obviously i was thinking about actually could your could bitcoin end up being your identity could a biometrics going to be your identity i mean i was talking earlier to someone this morning and we were chatting about whether actually your brain data will end up being the biometric of the future you know it's also personal but it's also public <laughs> because it's controlled by an external force in most cases the state and so that was really about um to what extent can you depend on and um, what kind of system are we going to have in a digital world? And it went into voting and talked about Estonia, um, Estonia having such a sort of blockchain-based digital infrastructure that allows you to literally kind of, I mean, I've got e-residency in Estonia, you know, kind of allows you to do anything you want to do in this digital sphere. Um, and so that was what the first chapter was about, really, which is the starting off point. The next chapter is watching you. <laughs> this is about surveillance. So once the once the government's got all that stuff, <laughs> how's it going to use it to surveil you? Um, now, this goes into sort of the social credit system. Um, I, I interview Audrey Tang, um, the digital minister in Taiwan. You know, we talk about lots of the innovation going on there. Interesting sidebar, this book was going to potentially be distributed in China, but I was asked to take out chapter two. And I said, no. <laughs> Whoa, okay, um, back up. Which back kind up. of made my point, right? It just so made my point. Why didn't they want you? Why didn't they want chapter two? Because um, they're a surveillance state? I think uh, maybe they didn't uh, agree with what I had to say about the social credit system. Although, you know, in, in it, you'll find that there's a, a lot of uh, survey data. And I did speak to experts who were very, I mean, it's very clear that there are a lot of um, citizens who, what should we say, talk very positively about the social credit system in China. Now you can make, you can come to your own conclusions about why that is, but that is just a fact. Um, and there are some upsides, but there are a heck of a lot of downsides. And I was, at the time, of course, I was writing it, we'd just gone into the it was the beginning of the pandemic. It was before the vaccines. It was before, but people are already talking about, well, you'll need to have some digital certification that you've been vaccinated or you are immune. And so that was all bubbling at the time. So really to take myself back to that time when I was writing it, um, yeah, it was a, it was actually quite a scary time. Mm. Um, and of course, it's not just governments who surveil, it's big tech is number one, you know, sort of mm -hmm. surveiller. Okay. In chapter three, you talk about creating you. I think this is my favorite chapter, actually, um, because this started off thinking about social media. And um, one of the big shifts is probably best articulated as um, sort of Nicholas Luhmann's sort of shift from uh, first order observation to second order observation. This really interesting shift that started with social media in particular, I think, um, which is we are less interested in directly observing X and we're more interested in observing how Y and Z observe X. So we moved into this 
world in which we are observing the observations of others. <laughs> well, um, and, 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 I think, news, yeah. and the news, yeah, yeah, CNN or the New York Times, <laughs> major news outlets are reporting on what's happened on social media, which is really quite funny. We're watching, we're watching CNN watch the news. We're exactly, not, it's Misha. so funny. It's so funny. Okay. But you loved, you love this chapter. Why? Yes, I do. Because I think it's, um, it points to the, uh, maybe the nub of this issue, which is what is the overlap? Where does one thing end and the next one begins? If I'm observing somebody else's observations, how do I know they're my observations and not just, I'm just <laughs> taking on board the observations of others. It's very absorb. It shows just how media is a, is very absorbing and emotive and immersive. And it's very difficult to separate the person from the environment and from the next person. And so what we're finding is the media becomes more immersive. Obviously, we're becoming less and less separated. That's one of the reasons we're becoming more of a, a group think in this tribe or, or whatever. Um, and I think I think that's the nub of the, you know, how we lose our autonomy in the end. We think we're doing the thing that we're doing for the group because we're very connected um emotionally connected to the group but actually what we're losing is our own agency personal yeah. agency brilliantly said one of the one of the things i find very curious about social media think or all of that the whole point the whole question of social proof they call social proof mm-hmm. it's like oh it's been out there it's been tried and tested people people like it people want it first of all no rubbish what gets promoted what gets pushed to the top on these platforms have nothing to do with what people really like or want That's or right, interested yeah. in first of all what's pushed to the top is what triggers people what uh, what triggers fear or some deep or darker uh, negative emotion because that's proven to hold people's attention longer than any other so fear, doubt, anxiety, um, all of the darker mm. emotions. Disgust. Yeah, mm. um, hate, uh, disgust, anger, outrage. And then, and then, so those are what are promoted because that's what the platform is knows mm. will keep people there. So once you've done that, then you people are captured audience and then you're seeing what triggers them more and what gets them more outrage and what gets them more engaged and upset Mm. and that gets pushed to the top and so now we have social proof that's completely manipulated has nothing to do what people really like or want but Mm -hmm. everything to do with what's been used or crafted to control or manipulate their behavior and so it's complete farce I think the whole thing is a terrible dark twisted mess of nonsense and I really would like to see you know something better emerge anyway um Uh, so would I so would I I think um I think you only have to spend a day away from it or even a, you know a week away from it and you start to recalibrate and think well it's kind of like you look back and think like the whole social you know tweeting away as was tweeting away you know is such a waste of energy um and misdirected energy and if you if you went on holiday for two weeks and didn't have your phone with you and didn't do any of that I think you have to go cold turkey and you just think you come back and you think what what on earth was I doing I was just literally like on a click farm um it's you do need to get some perspective though move away from it but of course people are addicted but but that's it. I think these platforms could be using for educating people, for putting out inf- great information, for letting people know what's happening. Mm-hmm. They could be so cool and exciting. You can meet the smartest people. You can engage and get to know. I mean, I've I've how me, did we meet? Yeah, how did we meet? <laughs> and I've met so many great people on on Twitter. So many smart, lovely, wonderful people. So it can be massively useful. But mm-hmm. That's because, but only if you know how to use it and are not don't get dragged into the darker side of it, which is, I think, what happens to most people. But anyway, mm-hmm. okay, so your chapter four is connecting you, which I think we've been talking about a bit, but t- tell us yeah. what you've been um, I'm trying to remember now. <laughs> yeah, connecting you was about um, uh, how you um, present yourself, um, 
as well. So a lot of it was at the time, of course, it was new about avatars and I was talking about AI and GPT and, uh, you know, presenting oneself in, you know, uh, a multitude of spaces all at once. And how are we going to do that? So how are you going to connect beyond the physical self Mm. in new ways so that you could be in lots of new spaces, um, kind of connecting with new people in new ways and actually kind of augment the self like that. Mm. Uh, which then takes you into the the, the chapter on augmentation in a, oh no replacing you is, is is that at work really that's more of a that's more about cognition and how AI is going to potentially help or hinder and a lot of that chapter is about how we are going to connect our brains together and obviously people know that as the hive mind but there's quite a lot on that and obviously the dreaded Neuralink and um, some other kind of uh, <laughs> innovations and then you have enhancing you which is what? That's A lot of that is to do with DNA and understanding DNA and that as a building block and what states and countries and nation states are doing and why they want it and think it's valuable um, and actually how they want to build a society and a, uh, a nation of uh, augmented humans really to to build in their resilience for lo- for lots of different uh, reasons um, but of course it also gets into the whole transhumanism debate around which parts of you are going are you going to augment and why and do we need to find new languages to sort of describe these humans um and what does happen with the separation what do you, what or do you non-separation think, machines what do you what do you mm. think about do you think about that so that let's say these newer technologies that allow you to that enhance you enhance the human those are are available and you get a little email saying hey tracy come try this new blah 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 are we just going to put a little we're just going to put a you know shoot a little chip into your into your right behind your ear and it's tiny it's not (laughs) going to it's it's there's there's no side effect it's going to be great what do you what do you do? Oh, and by well, the way, X, Y, and Z, they've all done it and and they love it and they think it's incredible and hear all their testimonials. What do you do? Are you, what, you personally, I mean, are you in are you Yeah. What do you think? No, I mean I mean I I'm worried that it ends up being surveillance, of course, but you know, because I see the promise of it and I've spoken to Zoltan, um, obviously, and and Max Moore and lots of transhumanists, and they have such an amazing uh, vision for it. And it's so well articulated and it's exciting and it's liberating. And of course, they always talk in the language of transcending the limits of the physical body. And that, you know, we've always wanted to do that. It's kind of quasi-religious. And we've always wanted to to do that. Um, uh, But I think (laughs) I think the problem is, again, it comes down to who owns that technology. You don't own it as an individual. So what you're going to hook yourself up to or become a hybrid to something, you aren't going to be in control of it. And that's exactly what it always comes down to. So any of these innovations, unless you can fully, you you can't be fully empowered by it unless you control it. And that's not realistic. Well, Mm. this is, this is the, this is the key point. Um, Can we build a technology Oh, is there a technology that's emerging that would allow us to control these tools, these enhancing tools? Because they're, the technology enhances if it is used properly, um, and and I think there 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 might be, and it's it's a zero knowledge technology, zero knowledge mm-hmm. proofs. This would be the way. So I think there's a there's there are some exciting new technologies that may help us to do that. But in the meantime. I think most people are not aware of what they're giving up every time they utilize these technologies, right? So, so that brings us to this whole question of privacy and, mm. and our loss of privacy, which I think is one of the most important issues in the world today. In your work, what have you learned about this? Um, privacy. I've learned that people don't care about it until they have some pain around it. Um, and a lot of the time, people don't care about it until they have children of their own. So only when they have children of their own, they start caring. But even then, I mean, I, I talk about it in the book. The um, UK Children's Commissioner did a report in the UK and, and showed that by the time a kid was 13 years old, its parents had shared 1,300 um, 
images of it in social media. So, you know, what can one do? One has been trained from an early age to allow an external person or machine or combination of both to create its identity for it. That's why a lot of people go into virtual reality to get away from the pressure that other people have put on them to behave in a certain way and to represent themselves as a certain identity. And a lot of VR is about exploring alternative identities because they feel the weight of social pressure on them, even, you know, just from their parents. Um, So uh, I think, you know, privacy, I don't really think we are going to ever go back to the amount of privacy we've had in the past. We'll have to sort of reframe privacy. We do have to have some secrets um, and we do need to be able to to keep them. I do think it's going to be very difficult to protect our anonymity in the metaverse or multiverses, whatever you want to talk about. Um, If we hook ourselves up to the wrong digital identity authentication system, if you like, so something like a world coin, world identity, something like that, that's very connected to a biometric, it's um, a kind of unchangeable uh, one ID, um, you're not going to be able to go anywhere in the metaverse without being tracked. And as I just said, these sort of new spaces and places should be for exploration and experimentation uh, as an addition to the physical world. But if one is going to be tracked there, as much there as they are in the physical world, possibly even more so, then they're not going to be these experimental places for exploration they will literally just be kind of digital prison camps um sorry i'm sounding very very dystopian and negative about it but i don't have the answer to this but this is what i am exploring because i think the more people i talk to and the more we twist this notion and this problem and this issue around the more likely we are to to get to some sort of solution maybe it's self-sovereign identity but there are problems with that maybe it's a kind of federated identity is it decentralization or actually or can people really be trusted to be in charge of their own identity do they need their bank to look after their identity so these are all the sorts of areas that we should be discussing and i do discuss i discuss them on my podcast but have different experts in and everybody's got a different point of view which is brilliant but there isn't a solution to this yet i think well i mean i think that and the reason i'm doing this podcast is that the human being is the most valuable resource on on the planet like it's it's about humans it's about individuals it's about the value of a person and their autonomy their sovereignty their capacity to direct their life and create a life that's meaningful and valuable mm-hmm. to them. And I think the more that is emphasized, the more humanity as a whole will, will progress. It's not deleting that or taking it away from people and giving the power to something outside of them, but the opposite. And we need to give people let each individual have the power that is theirs. And I think as individuals, we need to be trained to claim the power that is ours. One of the biggest problems in the world, I think, is when historically is when power, one person or a small group of people have most of the power or too much power. That's when things get out of hand. And that happens every time one person abdicates their power, someone else claims it. I think innate in every single human is a certain amount of power. And every single person needs to own that power. Or someone else will claim it and use it. And then things get out of control, out of hand. I think when we look back, we look at things like like different kinds of slavery. I mean, we were in a new form of like techno-slavery, right? All the yeah, different... New, yeah, new feudalism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. When we look at these sort of imbalances of power, we, we, bad things happen. Because if a person doesn't have autonomy, they can't protect themselves and their rights are, be, are abused. Somebody's abuser, then they become abused, abused. And then that proliferates. Once it happens once with one person, then it happens again, it happens again. It, it proliferates. We, we can't seem to avoid it. So the most important thing is for every person to own their power. And if we have technology that's taking it away from them, that's bad technology. But if we have technology that supports that each individual 
you know, being who they are and fulfilling their, holding their power and then living out their potential, then really very cool things can happen in the world. And in fact, it's the only way for us to be living. And and, and you said, you said, you said, I, I'm being dystopian. I don't think you're being dystopian at all. I think you're actually saying what is happening. Uh, the only thing I'd add to that is that there are some new technologies that I think are really people, there are people, technologists who get this, who feel the same way. And they're like, there's mm. no way I'm going to be a part of that that dystopian future or continuing that dystopia, I'm going to build something better. And I think, so that's another conversation we can have, but what were you, you wanted to say something. No, I agree with, I agree with everything you said. Um, and I love the permissionless uh, element of some of the, the distributed ledger, the decentralization, the fact that there isn't a locus of control at the center telling you whether you can have permission to participate or not that has to go away and i think we we saw some of it around in the in the beginnings of social media but what what i was going to mention was i mean when you said you know technology taking away our power i think it's worse than that misha i think we're allowing it i think we are all, we're so <laughs> Um, unthinking about you know the data that's being extracted from our personal identity the knowledge boxes the profiles that are being created of us so that these digital twins of us exist around the internet that we have no knowledge of you know and and this is this is one of the conundrums do you try and create so much data um that uh, fills those knowledge boxes like you really go out there and promote yourself and your content and your data and you fill that knowledge box so it is you or as close as possible to be you or do you literally shun it and say you're not having anything and shut it all down and don't let any data because somebody's going to make a profile of you anyway and this is one of the interesting conundrums do you play or do you take your ball away and say nothing to do with me (laughs) right and and articulating it in that way, I think, is super, super helpful and useful for our listeners to understand what's going on. Uh, maybe we don't have the answers precisely, but that's the journey of technology. And yes, smart exactly. people can, if smart people are working on a problem, they will find a solution. And I think there are tons of good, smart people who don't want our power, who want to build mm. a, a world where people technology enhances, uh, empowers people, gives people back their power, where technology protects your privacy and gives you tools to help you fulfill your potential. I I think there are tons of great technologists working on on these problems, but we need to know, we need to be able to distinguish good technology from the rest. I, I think that's crucial. Tracy, so, can our identity survive 21st century technology? Yes and no. And as usual, as all futurists will say about the future, this will happen if that happens. This won't happen if that doesn't happen. You know, it's all very dependent. It's if this, then that. Um, and so if we... Um, engage with this and these questions that you're posing to me today and this kind of discussion if we engage in this as individuals and groups and at whatever organization levels as well we we will be fine and we'll find a way through it if we don't engage in it and like one of the most surprising things to me when I probably because I've been researching it and I'd spoken to people who got it because obviously those are the people I'm going to engage with I'm writing a book or doing a podcast about it um when the book went out, people were like, what? What are you talking about? Like, And I was thinking, is it me? Do I need to like reframe this? Do I need to find a different word for identity? I'll talk about self, the digital self, selves. No, still don't people. You know, it, I couldn't even get wired to run anything about the book. I couldn't get any engagement around it. And to me, it's almost like it's been put in the that's too hard to think about box. And I, I'm all about that that box because like that's the interesting messy stuff that needs discussing um but uh same with south by southwest didn't take take me on in this and i'm like what why because this is the nitty gritty stuff and i i'm absolutely sure if enough people kind of uh see it in the right way they're really engaged with it i mean if you aren't interested in whether 
the concept of your own self, your personal identity is going to disappear. What are you interested in? I mean, it's the only thing I think you should be interested in because everything else is so dependent upon it. So to me, it's the crucial, fundamental, elemental issue. And more people, and I love that you're doing this, and I thank you enormously and for all the promotion you did around the book because you put it out around uh, Twitter and, and promoted it. And I was like, thank God, you know, somebody not only gets it but can take it on to like the next level of discussion um and so if people don't engage in it we will end up in this dystopian technological neo-feudalistic sort of nightmare but if people do then they'll take back control of it and we will create empowering um technologies that are in the hands of individuals not in the hands of institutions whose really only purpose in life is to maintain the status quo so what can our listeners, what what do they need to be thinking about in general and preparing for more more concretely? And then I'm going to ask you to what's your one thing? So mm. sort of general, like where's the world headed? What should people be preparing for? And then what's that one thing that they can do? Well, we're heading for even more chaos, contradiction and complexity. I mean, no doubt about that. That is where we're heading. We're in these post-normal times. We're in this interregnum, the old system crumbling, nearly gone. The new system, not quite yet there. It's emergent, but not, but has not emerged yet. That's one of the reasons we don't know what to call it. Can, we, um, can you, can you stop there, Trace? Can yet. you stop there for a second? Mm. So interregnum, love that. Great mm. phraseology. Um, we're in this in-between time, exactly, but... Two possible futures exist, and they, they, it hasn't emerged yet. Which, which, what the exactly the options are to the to the overtly to the person on the outside looking in? It's like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen yet. But if you go in and study it, as you have, two possible futures are could emerge. There are two possibilities, and it's up to us to decide which one's going to happen is it going to be this one or is it going to be this one would you agree i think there are many possible futures i think there's more than two that's what i think um i think it doesn't really matter which ones emerge they're all going to be chaotic for a time right they're going to be chaotic because it is the property of the internet to be networked and networking is a complexity it, it's 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 complex and it's chaotic for us because we're continuing to apply the old models of the old world to this new emergent world you cannot order and manage which you can in the linear world a network you can only navigate and sense it and so we have to move from managing to sensing um and until we do that, then we aren't going to be able to navigate our way around this complexity because we're going to follow. Like, there's lots of alternatives at the minute. Like, well, what, have, what I mean, mm. let me just clarify, because you're completely mm. correct. I agree. But at an infrastructure level, there are two possibilities, sort of gr larger possibilities. Either we continue along the path of corporate control of our digital infrastructure and all of the attendant issues that we've sort of in, you've enumerated in your book and right in our conversation. Oh, that's one, one very specific possibility. We continue along this path, same type of infrastructure, client, server, uh, internet that's controlled by corporations and big centers of institutional power. Mm -hmm. Or we have a digital infrastructure that is the change or you can have a complete and utter breakdown you could have a complete and utter breakdown of any infrastructure you could have a world in which there is no infrastructure either at a sort of individual level or or a, or a uh, an institutional level and fourthly you could also have a, a tribal um kind of world um created where there is infrastructure but it's in pockets it's in tribes and uh these aren't all the same it's very interesting this exploration of different scenarios because obviously you're right there's a kind of optimistic as we would see it from our point of view you and me let's say an optimistic and a pessimistic sort of scenario but <clears throat> this is the interesting thing about alternative futures there are many more as well um, but I do think whether it's the opt 
whether it's tech in the service of humans or humans in the service of tech, right? Let's stick to your two yeah, like uh, scenarios there. They're still going to be chaotic, both of them, because um, we don't have an official truth anymore. Um, and so where we used to have a consensus that people could buy into, and that was kind of the navigating force of, through life for most people. You know, you believed what you saw on the mainstream TV, what you read in the papers, you were told how to work by your manager, da, 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 you know, all these, the very linear thing. We don't have that now. We have resonance, not consensus. So this resonance of what makes sense with this group group I'm in or these people who are like-minded or who I share some values with and so we have these these group functions these nodes these networks and they're all jostling for influence and so it's always going to be a little chaotic and one thing I would like to say is that thinking about that world that we're heading to um, I mean you could call it you know going from a multipolar world to a from a from a, a unipolar world to a multipolar world you can there's lots of different ways to to think about it but from the point of view of identity, we are wedded, certainly in the West anyway, to think about authenticity. There is one authentic human being who has a very consistent identity over time, and that's how we know them and we know to trust them. As we move into this chaotic world of multiplicity from mono to multi, um, as we move from kind of analog to digital as we move from institutional to individual we're going to have to drop this idea this concept of authenticity and actually find a new language a new framework and a new way to think about identity i mean other people have done work on it like hans georg muller who suggests that it's pro felicity we need to think about ourselves as digital data profiles so we are slightly different in slightly different contexts dependent on the relationship we have to this group or this other person we're communicating with we're not just one solid <laughs> consistent never changing authentic identity and my worry is that if we try and use the standard of authenticity in this new exciting pluralistic multifaceted digital world then we're going to create some really big identity crises and that's where we'll get a lot of chaos. So what we need to do is try and create and build and conceptualize the models of behavior and belief and um, and uh, and the mental capacity and resilience for this kind of uh, this kind of networked world, if you like, because that is the biggest problem I see that. You could have a chaotic physical world, but actually I think potentially we're going to have quite a chaotic psychological world. People we are going we to already, find it very... Yeah, we, we already, already do. We're already facing yes, that, right. I think. Yeah. yeah. And it's going to get worse, though. I think, I'm sure people think, oh, I can't get much worse. It can get very confusing as people start to live these parasocial lives. So I think that's the, the thing that we need to spend more attention and time on, really. Yeah. Okay, so... So brilliant. In, in every episode, I'm giving our listeners one thing to do that will be most impactful in helping them get ready for the future. What's your one thing, Tracy, most important, simple step that an, a person, a lis someone who's listening can take to prepare for this very different future? Always remember that the future is plural. Like there is no one future. The fu future is plural. There are alternatives to be suggested and investigated. Um, there are always alternatives. Um, and those futures are there for us to co-create. We are not in the business of forecasting, like predicting one future. The future is plural. And once you get, I had a, a company say to me the other day, I started off a presentation saying the future is plural and they were just like what and the CEO came up to me and she said when you said that at the beginning suddenly all these things went off in my head and I was thinking oh yes and actually it was liberating it was liberating to them to think we don't have one dark dystopian uh, automated future in front of us it's open to us to co-create with others and so I think always remember that the future is plural I love it that's Absolutely brilliant. All right. Well, Tracy Fowler, 
This was absolutely delightful. I mean, even better than I thought it was going to be. Just delicious chatting with you. So everyone listening in, get the book, The Future of You. Listen to Tracy's podcast, The Future of You. Follow Tracy on social so you can keep up with the latest on the future of identity and a whole lot of other good, very necessary stuff. And thanks again, Tracy. This was incredible. Thank you, Misha. Absolute pleasure to get to talk to you and good luck with this amazing podcast. Make sure to listen, follow and subscribe for new episodes wherever you get your podcasts and on our YouTube channel.